what the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians in particular all want is they want their own spheres of influence. They want to be the dominant political and economic actors in their areas. And because of those reasons, they really want to fracture the relationships between the United States and our allies and partners in those places. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and we're joined by FP columnist Rosa Brooks, Senior Future of War Fellow at New America, professor at Georgetown University, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, and Colin Call, who is heading up FP's shadow government blog with Julie Smith and Derek Chalet. He's currently a professor at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in the Security Studies program. ER nerds, we have some awesome new mugs that we're debuting. Send us your ideas or a sad, sad sob story, and you may be one of the lucky ones. Email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, (laughs) we had the following conversation. So, Rex Tillerson... You remember him, the phantom secretary of state? No one knows what he looks like. Maybe he wears a mask, maybe a hood. I think he's the guy who used to be at Exxon, right? Could have been. Yeah. Aren't who they the guys know? who write the press releases they for the White House They write press now? releases for the White House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And apparently established, you know, our environmental policies. If only at this point I would take that. That would be so much better than the current head of the EPA. The current head of the EPA. Who, yeah. You know, it's like going door to door pumping carbon monoxide into people's houses. <laughs> I mean, literally. After handing out cups with lead in it. That, right. Pointing a blow dryer up into the air. Just yeah, to, only know, this administration where they say, we are so proud that we have repealed the Clean Water Act. Yeah. You know, because we are taking a strong stand against clean water. Yeah. I didn't really hear that part when Trump went to Flint during the campaign. But yeah, you know. exactly. He didn't. He didn't. He was for clean water in Flint and against it everywhere else. So Tillerson was wafting off to Asia. I don't yeah. know if he needs a plane or apparently not with the press, right? He doesn't take the press with him on these I things. I wouldn't take the press with me either. They're a bunch of pests. Yeah. What do they? What role do they play really in democracy? Nothing solves your low profile by not including the press on yeah, a trip. Well, yeah. I, you know, I have to say after a few weeks of a secretary of state being assailed from left and right for having a low profile, not essentially having press conferences, then going to two live ones a week and two on the telephone and not actually having a briefer who knows what's going on, not because he's not a smart guy. He's a smart guy, but he's not being told by the rest of the government. I start to think it's not like an accident. Or as they say all the time in the news today, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Yeah, it's really strange, though, right? Because by all accounts, he was recommended to Trump by, you know, some pretty big luminaries like Bob Gates and Condi Rice, who pointed to him as an extraordinarily effective corporate statesman, in a sense. And, you know, he's leading one of the largest corporations in the world, traveled all around the world, made his company a lot of money. Um, So it's weird that he would take a job and then recede into the background quite so much. I did, um, you know, on the budget cuts that were proposed, you know, slashing it by a third, it probably won't be a third. But, you know, I have heard that Tillerson very much wants to reorganize uh, the State Department and may see a big budget cut as a kind of shock therapy that allows him to rejigger things. But I don't know who would help him do that since there are no political appointees and I don't know what the vision is or or anything else. But it's it's, it's not clear what he wants. It also shows a lack of understanding 
understanding about actually how budgets work in Washington, yeah. right? Where congressional committees have their own sort of sacred cattle yeah. and they don't like certain kinds of budget cuts because they actually reduce their power. And uh, in this particular case, it looks like the places they want to cut, development, some of those other things, are not necessarily the areas you would cut to streamline the department. Streamlining the department would actually involve some reconsideration of how the department would actually work. And there's no evidence that conversation is taking place. Indeed, he doesn't have a deputy. Yeah. He can't seem to you know, hire many people for, for many positions. But well, nonetheless, he's got to do something. And so what he's doing is apparently going to Asia. Yeah, China, Japan, and South Korea. I would get as far away as possible, too, if I were in his position. <laughs> I'd be thinking, what part of the world is furthest away from watching? Oh, Asia. Yeah, except the expectations, of course, are enormous right now because of all the turmoil surrounding North Korea's missile activities. Not to mention and, the South Korean president being removed from yeah, office. Yeah, and all of this. And also, and, and also, look, so this is a pretty high-stakes trip for him. Uh, and, and, and By the way. And for the world, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, but first, luckily we won't know what happens because there won't right, be luckily any press. We won't know, but so I mean, I that'll be fine. I think it's high stakes in at least yeah. in at least two regards, right? One, the Japanese and the South Koreans are going to be looking very intently as to what our policy and reassurance message is on North Korea. So he can't go there completely empty-handed, or just him being there won't be reassuring if he doesn't have a set of policies, proposals, or giving them at least a little bit of a sense for where the administration wants to go on on North Korea. The problem with that, of course, is why would anybody trust anything that he said? Why would anybody believe that he speaks for the president of the United States? I mean, all cabinet officials have this uh, this particular problem. But I think Tillerson at the moment has not established any credibility as, you know, having a close personal relationship or speaking for the president. So that's one that's a that's a big problem with our allies. The other big thing, of course, is when he goes to Beijing, the Chinese are going to be, you know, sniffing him, sniffing him out and sniffing around uh, uh, the Trump administration for what their overall policy it's towards China is going really to be. Yeah. It's very and, dog park. And I don't know, besides, you know, the, the Chinese perhaps delivering a few more trademarks to the, you know, uh, Trump. Uh, the Trump uh, escort yeah, service trademarks. Those types of things. Yeah. Bodyguards, too. I, I understand. Bodyguards in all respects uh, in, the, in this particular case. It's not exactly clear what the play with China is either, because you continue to have quite hawkish notions coming out out of the kind of economic nationalists uh, in the White House vis-a-vis the Chinese. And yet there's also a recognition that unless they work with China in some ways, they're not going to resolve a whole host of geopolitical problems in the region like North Korea. So I just have no idea what they're trying to do in Asia. And so it seems weird to send your disempowered Secretary of State to reassure and engage when there's no plan and it well, doesn't also, have a lot I mean, of You're absolutely right to point out the economic nationalists with regard to China, right? And who are those economic nationalists? You have Peter Navarro, yeah. who is a crackpot fringe, anti-China, you know, hair on fire kind of nutcase, who, by the way, has been published in Foreign Policy. Um, well done. Uh, thank you. Who's, <laughs> who's, who's running the International Trade Council. You've got uh, Bob Lighthizer as the United States trade representative, can't stand China, yeah, sees China as the, you know, source of all evils. You've got Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of Commerce, who at least asserts and seems to be on the way to being the most powerful Commerce Secretary ever because he's going to negotiate trade deals in addition to doing whatever happens in the Commerce Department, which, by the way, I worked there for three years. Nothing happens in the Commerce Department. <laughs> well, no, there's the census and there's a couple of other things. And NOAA was very the important. census happens in the Commerce Department? Uh, well, the, yeah, it's run out of the commerce. Run out. Of How the about that? I right? see. I learned something new today. Um, it's it, it, it's run out of there. I mean, the <laughs> Census Bureau reports up, and the Bureau of Economic 
Anyway, it's a long story. But NOAA was really important part of the Commerce Department. But apparently we're going to defund NOAA because, you know, who needs um, climate science? Who needs weather? Who needs weather? But the, he's Wilbur Ross, very anti-China. Um, the only person in the economic team who doesn't seem to be super anti-China is Gary Cohn, the National Economic Council. But the question is how much traction he's going to have amidst all of that. But when you look at the international team, you know, and you say, well, who's the China quarterback? There is no China quarterback. Um, there isn't anybody. You know, I mean, the, the military guys have been spending most of their careers fighting terrorism. Unless you run PACOM in the military, you don't really get to be a big China specialist. And uh, Tillerson, while he's had some ties there, have been primarily focused elsewhere. So it's not an administration that seems to have anything for China except an irrational hatred. Yeah. And I would, uh, and I think you have to add, you know, Darth Bannon in that category too. Obviously, as as chief ideologue, and obviously feeding Trump. He hates no, the Chinese. He hates them. In fact, and, he loves this this idea. Apparently. I was talking yesterday to Graham Allison yeah. uh, from Harvard, and Graham's got a book coming oh, out, and it's on the trap. Thucydides trap, right? Which is this idea that established states tend to go to war with rising states that challenge them. And Graham's book, which is coming out and sounds very interesting, sort of looks at 16 cases of this in history. And of the 16 cases, 12 of the cases, a war resulted from this, and four of the cases, a war did not. And and he said to me when I was talking about it that Bannon apparently has bought into the notion that China versus the U.S. is the Thucydides trap case of our lifetime. That's also the focus of of the book, and that and that he believes that this is inevitable. A yeah. struggle with China is inevitable. I think that there's a lot to that. In fact, one of the things that we heard repeatedly during the transition uh, from the Obama administration to the Trump administration was the degree to which they saw the defining challenge of the 21st century as the economic war with China, not a competition, not a managing China's peaceful rise and all that kumbaya talk that you got from uh, the Obama administration, but an economic war with China. And the goal was not just for us to continue doing well, but for the Chinese to do worse, to immiserate the Chinese. And when you combine that with this narrative that Navarro has, but also uh, uh, Bannon and Trump himself, that basically letting China into the WTO at the beginning of the 21st century is what deindustrialized the United States, which obviously experts the disagree worst deal about ever, and, right, except worst, for the other worst deal, right? Except ever. for New Start and the Iran deal, NAFTA. Yeah. NAFTA. You, you, you get the point. But I do think that you have a the, the kind of the weight of the room is going to be pretty hawkish on China economically in terms of currency tariffs, uh, trade enforcement, and the rest. And what I don't understand is how you pick a major or risk a major trade war with China and hope to do business with them on any of these other geopolitical but, issues. But I know I heard a story. You you know plugged in. You hear yeah. lots of stories. Rosa's. You know, I don't know if you hear any Nothing stories. Nothing but stories. Nothing but stories. Okay. <laughs> Some of them are it's, it's, true. <laughs> <laughs> you say that. It's, you sound so much like Rain Man when you said that. <laughs> Nothing but stories. But in any event, the story I heard was that Trump got a bunch of business leaders together very early on. It was, you know, you remember the pictures and it was like uh, Jack Welch and a bunch of these other guys, Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan and yeah. so forth. And the world without women. It, it, it is a world without – well, actually, unfortunately, the Fortune 500 is a world without women. But in any event um, – and they start going around and at some point, somebody has him launch into something on currency manipulation. 
and he starts going, you know, we have to go after the Chinese on currency manipulation and we're going to nail them on this. And Jack Welch goes, uh, I don't really think that's a good idea. And Trump's like, well, surely, Jamie Dimon, you think this is a good idea. And he's like, well, I don't really think that's a good idea either. And they go around the room and everybody goes, I don't really think that's a good idea. And Trump like turns to, you know, whoever the advisor is and Ryan's like, I thought you guys talked to them about this. Why didn't we get this? You know, because he had obviously been put in the spot of selling this kind of international economic snake oil that the China bashers around him have been selling. And nobody who's actually doing business in the real world wants to buy into it. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's a lot of support on either end. Look, you can either you can either decide to prioritize the economic rivalry and relationship with China or the political rivalry and relationship with China. It's hard to beat the crap out of them in both places and expect uh, to get a lot done. And I don't know any – I know a lot of China experts who thought that – the Obama administration was too soft. Let the Chinese get away with too much that we should have had sharper elbows, being willing to push them harder on, you know, threatening targeted secondary sanctions to get them to play ball in North Korea, et cetera. But I don't know anybody who thinks it's a good idea to pick a fight with them across the board and risk a trade war without it, you know, rebounding on our economy and our ability to secure our interests in Asia. Well, but, you know, here's the thing. Donald Trump thinks it's 1983 yep. and he's just gotten back from a long night at Studio 54, right? And he's wearing his like mullet and he's like – this is his worldview, you know? And if only he could be more like, you know, one of the Gordon Geckos of the day yep. and have more gold-plated toilets, everything would be good in the world. But his his kind of idea of countries – is based on this period of time. And China was a smallish develop. I mean, it wasn't small, but it was developing. It was not an economic superpower. China is, in purchasing power parity terms, the largest economy in the world right now. And if you blow up the largest economy in the world, that's bad for the global economy. You know, it is a terrible idea for us who are so closely tied to them in trade and need them so much for our future. And it, it shows a real lack of appreciation for where we are. Right, Rosa? David, you're, you seem so surprised by this. I mean, yes, of course, it is a disaster of a piece with the other disasters we are seeing in this administration. I, I, I sometimes wonder, maybe we're all barking up the wrong tree when we think, oh, is Trump being manipulated by the Russians and think, well, maybe it's all a Chinese plot. Because up to a point, I do think that China benefits from the utter chaos and collapse of U.S. strategic plans in the rest of the world. But I agree that just as I suggested in, in one of our recent episodes, that if Putin, in fact, had invested heavily in Trump's victory, he must be experiencing some degree of buyer's remorse as he sees exactly how unpredictable and unstable Trump is. I, I think the Chinese have got to be quite worried, too, because you know, who knows what's going to happen. I, I don't I don't think yeah. there's a plan. I don't think Trump has a plan. I don't think Trump has any coherent vision whatsoever. I don't think Trump has the desire or the capability to think through the ways in which his approach to China or any other issue are internally contradictory and likely to be self-destructive long-term for the United States. I, I don't I, think he has plans on anything. I think yeah. basically no, I think he has we're, gut we're, over, we're right, overthinking this. I think, look, I think Trump himself gets has gut impulses and instincts. Which he needs to suppress because he will get arrested for some of them. But on China, you know, David, you mentioned that, that you know, or not. these views, I he just, thinks I it's... have an image of a tarp with the presidential seal on it, but I'm not <laughs> going to really develop that. Go on. That, no, you said that, that, you know, that Trump thinks it's 1983. I, he may think it's the late 1980s. I do think that a lot of Trump's foundational views about the world, such as the late are, 80s. I'm, no, I'm off by five well, years. No, let me explain, though, because 
Look, you know, a guy in, in New York in the 1980s, the Cold War is winding down, but, the, but everybody is talking about what's the next big challenge. And the next big challenge is the Europe, but principally the Germans, but mostly Japan, right? Japan's buying up way too much real estate, way too many investments. Right, we were gonna, also Rosa scared Brooks of Japan. was writing a book in 88, it would have been on Japan. That's right. Yeah. And then, then what did the Japanese do? They manipulated their currency and unfair trade practices, collusion with corporate uh, interests, and they were destroying our jobs. And you had members of Congress smashing Toshibas on the on the front steps. And, and the whole contest was this nationalist zero-sum contest for whether we were going to rise or fall as a great power. Remember when, Kennedy's when I, book? No, when I got into the Commerce Department in 1993, we were at war with Japan. And Japan Auto Talks was the central area of U.S. international trade policy. So I think for Trump, it's a lot of it is just is just like find and replace. That like China takes place in his brain and the in the place that Japan did in the in the 1980s. But there's no there there. There's no thought. This is a set of impulses that have that invariably go back to some nationalist, mercantilist kind of 19th century view uh, of the world. And now he's just transplanted it to a country in China that can do us a lot greater damage and hold at risk a lot more of our interests. Well, I think the, Chi- you know, the Chinese do not view this as a zero-sum game. So the Chinese are not cheering the chaos in, in the United States or the decline of the United States. I think the Chinese feel, and I've been to China twice in the past few months, and I'm actually going again in a few days after this broadcast airs, and I think the Chinese I've spoken to are a little bit confused. They don't. They they haven't seen this. And also, Trump doesn't meet their. Trump is confusing. Well, but, but they, no, I, when I was there <laughs> in in July, when I was there in September, they would say, "Well, you know, Donald Trump. He's he. We like him better than Hillary Clinton because a she annoyed us, and b he's a Republican, and Republicans like China, and c he's rich, and rich people tend to be successful for a reason, and so he's probably very good at what he does." And then all of a sudden he came in and, you know, went one way on the one China policy. He's since gone another way. He's got all these bad people around him. And now they're they're confused. But they realize that maintaining this relationship is important. And they've started to play this role, which they started in Davos. And Xi Jinping comes in and he says, you know, if you don't take the lead in the international system, we'll we take will. the lead in the international system. They've started to step up more as a global power. Because they see a void coming from the U.S., not to supplant the U.S., not because that was their plan because they would have just as soon waited, but because they want to have a stable international system and they're very, very pragmatic about this stuff. And I can't honestly say that thinking – looking ahead 10, 20 – 30 years, uh, that the world might not be better off. You know, if the America of the next 10 years is Trump's America and we have to choose between China stabilizing the world order or or the impact of Trump's America, I mean, it may be better for the globe that it's China. Well, but guess what? It also may be better for the globe if the majority of people on the globe actually had more influence, right? You know, It turns out I understand that there are a lot of people in China. There's a lot of people in China. There's a lot of people in India. and You know that saying, you're one in a million, Rosa? If you're (laughs) one in a million in China, there are 1,500 other people just like you. (laughs) But, you know, the other thing is in China and the rest of the world, they view it that we're returning to normal. For all of human history, up until the year 1835, China was the largest economy in the world. India was the second largest economy in the world. Then what happened was the Industrial Revolution that shifted power to countries that had technology and capital to take advantage of it. Then they industrialized. They caught up. And what is happening now is that the balance is being restored. And it is – if you believe in democracy – 
if you believe in sort of American ideals, then you kind of got to believe in a world in which the majority of people have a proportional say to their numbers, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't think that China or countries like Russia or Iran, they're all challenged the United States. I don't think any of them actually wants to supplant the United States at the global level. And I think ultimately what they would prefer is kind of a global system that hangs just enough together for stable economic uh, relations, et cetera. But what they all want, what the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians in particular all want is they want their own spheres of influence. They want to be the dominant political and economic actors in their areas. And because of those reasons, they really want to fracture the relationships between the United States and our allies and partners in those places. So Putin's running his game against NATO and the EU, of which Trump may be complicit. The Chinese want to crowd us out uh, in Southeast Asia and South China Sea uh, and and the rest. And of course, uh, the Iranians also want to divide us from uh, the Israelis and from the Gulf states, et cetera. I think this is where they're torn with Trump. Because on the one hand, they worry that he could create international chaos, that they could run counter to their interests and leave them holding the bag or carrying more of the burden in the case of Xi's speech at, at Davos or whatever. But they also see enormous opportunity regionally to basically use the kind of mix of malice and incompetence uh, that the Trump administration manifests as a way to drive wedges between us and our traditional allies in ways that completely benefit them. And China sees that, Putin sees that, the Iranians see that. Well, you know, I think it's very interesting to me because I see Trump as one of the last politicians of the 20th century. Whether he's 1983 or 1988, He's more than the 20th century. The reality is that the right-wing resurgence in Europe are 20th century century politicians. Putin is a 20th century politician. Bibi's a 20th century politician. First half of 20th century. No, no, I mean, seriously. All of them are fighting against progress. They are afraid of technological change, demographic change, shifting global geopolitical change. And they're trying to forestall all of that change. The Chinese and the Asians recognize that history is on their side. I think they think they've had some good breaks along the way, both in terms of their own growth and in terms of weakening of other powers. But we don't have in the U.S. an international view that's suited to this new era, at least, you know, uh, with certainly within this administration, but I think to a full extent. And, you know, one of the paradoxes, I don't want to get too academic about this, but one of the things that strikes me about this that's kind of interesting is Henry Kissinger is now 94 years old or whatever. And Kissinger, you know, got his start with a doctoral dissertation at, at Harvard uh, based about Metternich and about the balance of power world of the early part of the 19th century. And he then launched into a career during which he lived in a bipolar world. And he became sort of the godfather of a lot of foreign policy throughout that period. And now as he gets to the end of his life— Godfather in the Marlon Brando sense. In many cases. But we now get to the end of that period and we're back into a multipolar world. We're back into a world where what Colin was talking about, which is essentially a condominium between major powers, where the Chinese view is that the world exists and there are multiple major powers. And if they respect their spheres, um, they can live in some degree of harmony is kind of what you need to come to in order to work in this world. This administration is fighting furiously against it. But I got to say my money is on the Chinese you know, promote not not that the Chinese worldview is going to take hold fully, or that China is going to end up being um, disproportionately dominant. 
but that this notion of a different kind of geopolitical relationship among powers is going to win because it's the only one that makes sense. See, I'm just not sure that China is well postured for this. We may not be either under the current leadership, but look, the shifts that you see structurally across the international system are at least threefold, right? You have the shift in power among states, uh, China rising, uh, uh, the United States in relative uh, decline. So the return of multipolarity in the way that political scientists uh, think about it. You have the shift of power away from- As opposed from, to referring to Trump himself. Correct. Uh, you have the, the shift of multipolar power- multipolar president. <laughs> you have the shift of power away from states where non-state actors, both nefarious like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or uh, philanthropic organizations or large investors and corporations. And then you have the collapse of states in certain parts of the world, like uh, principally in the Middle East and in North Africa. And a lot of this is a consequence of demographics, but it's especially as a consequence of technology and changes in technology and the digitization of life and how that's changing the nature of work and life and, and power and relationships. It means new actors, new networks, new sources of power and new modes of governance. And I'm just not sure that that you know a communist regime that embraces capitalism and thinks in state-centric uh, terms and is afraid of their own people is well-situated ultimately to navigate that new terrain. I think the United States is almost uniquely well-situated in theory uh, because of our look to the future, our embrace of innovation, how many of the creative voices and companies are here. But it would require leadership of a completely different vein, not one that embraces nationalism and the notion and, and old 19th century versions of sovereignty, re, you know, rejects multilateralism and basically denigrates civil society, the media, all institutions of democratic governance. Look, I think the U.S. has the advantage right now and is well positioned to lead in this new environment. I think it is a mistake to characterize the Chinese um, precisely as you did, although I think you were doing it for the benefit of time, because communist doesn't mean communist, and Fair. you know, afraid of their people, you know, their their political change is taking place there, and they've been very pragmatic about adapting, and I think they will continue to be pragmatic about adapting. But all of this makes me think. You know, if only somebody would write a book about the major technological changes that are happening in the world and how it's going to force us to reassess our view of what a community is, what a government is, what a, uh, international institutions are, what money is, what war is, what peace is. And that book were a short little TED book that came out on April 9th and was called The Great Questions of Tomorrow. It would be incredibly timely. Um, and and accessible for everybody, and written in the same kind book. of jolly voice of the ER podcast. Uh, you'd probably want to buy a book like that, right? I would. I would. And Rosa, <laughs> you probably have already gone copies. to Amazon and bought multiple copies of as, that book, as all ER listeners should do, as they all should do. Great questions of tomorrow by David Rothkopf, coming from Simon and Schuster, a TED book. Rosa, anything to say? <laughs> It's, it's a, it, Is it a great book or the greatest book you've never read? Get out there, ER, ER listeners. Sorry, you teed Place it up. Place your pre-order now. I haven't brought it up in any of these podcasts, but Colin just sort of teed it up. So I just no, this is know. just kind of a teaser. It's a, it's a short book. We like short books. It's a short book. I could actually read it to everybody on a podcast, and it'd be over. It's, well, it's, I mean, while you're sitting around waiting for that, I do actually, for all the nerds listening, you should go and in the interim download the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends Report that came out because it actually speaks to all the rel most relevant trends affecting our world have almost nothing to do with the old thinking about geopolitics and state-centric this, that, and the other Well, thing. that's right. And that's, you know, the thing, I gave a talk at the Aspen Institute event in Abu Dhabi two weeks ago, and the, so I started by saying, look, all the stuff you've been talking about, Donald Trump and all the stuff we talk about on this, it's not the big story. Like the big story of 2017, almost certainly, 
is that three or four hundred million people this year are going to end up connected to the internet and they weren't connected to it at the beginning of the year and therefore are going to have access to information and one another and culture and jobs and money, mobile banking, all these other things that they didn't have before. And the changes associated with the reweaving of civilization via technology are much, much more profound than all of these other changes. And frankly, the you know, to get back to the point that Colin was making, I, I just think the big changes in the world are going to happen regardless of the fact that the Trumps and the Farages and the Le Pens and the Putins and the Netanyahus are struggling to keep us in the 20th century. We are going to get there because the force of history is behind those changes. And this is a good time to quote Karl Marx. Men make history, but they do not make it just as they wish. Uh, thank you, Karl. You're welcome. Thanks, I do, Karl. I do think I do, I do, there's going to be <laughs> enormous— But they call me Red Rosa. <laughs> red, oh, yeah, they red do call red. you Red. I've seen them call you Red. <laughs> Look, I think there are enormous opportunities, but obviously there's a lot of peril in the digitization of everything. And I think, look, the Chinese are going to go through their own automation— phase that's going to put hundreds of millions of people's livelihoods uh, at risk. You know, one of the most terrifying stories I read in the last six months was probably the notion of Amazon Go, right? The notion that you go into a grocery store. My wife loved this, by the way. Uh, but you go in the grocery store and you just pick out the items and you just walk out. It's like Uber. You don't. You, you, there's no cashier or anything. That's great for all of us who want to spend less time in the grocery store. It's terrible for the enormous number of people who work in the service industry as, as cashiers. Or think about how within the next 10 years, Artificial intelligence is going to basically remove accountants and it's a lot of parallel. Well, there was a, sto- lot, there was a story you know, just a, a, about a week ago of a new study that showed that 40-odd percent of all jobs will be eliminated by AI. Right. And it's not exactly clear what's going to replace that and what the social bargain is. And what I worry about is that in the context of Trump and Bannonism and all the morning, rest— in the morning, fish in the afternoon. Right. Yeah. Back to basics. Yeah. No, I think everybody's <laughs> going to have a podcast. In fact, I think yeah. everybody because you can't you can't do this yeah. with artificial intelligence. But the notion that you can have a nineteenth <laughs> cent- the notion that you can have a nineteenth century solution to these problems of building walls and being protectionist and being mercantile and reimposing the state's control over the economy, which is basically what, uh, in some respects, oddly enough, Trump would like to do as it relates to jobs. Now, these are not responses to any of these trends that are well, also also or to maintain a national. Identity in a globalizing world. And that's why, you know, three blocks from my house in Alexandria, Virginia, Richard Seymour and the Nazis have taken up over a chocolate shop, you know, because they are afraid. There's a lot of people who are afraid. And Trump was ushered into power by a lot of people who are afraid of real trends. And we have to recognize that. But the solution is not. I'm going to give you the 21st century over again because you can't. The solution is I'm going to figure out a way for you to work within the context of the 21st century. And that requires new thoughts and new ideas. And those ain't coming Are from these guys. Are you optimistic? I mean, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that things necessarily turn out well here in the next century or so, uh, either for America or I'm, for the rest I, of the world. Personally, I mean, I'm optimistic, but I'm afraid of transitions. You know, in other words, I think that all the trends that were set afoot in the last period – that is akin to this, which which I, I think is the Reformation. I mean, it, the the Industrial Revolution is a little bit like this, yeah. but but the big big changes of going from a feudal era to the nation state era came with the rise of the middle class, came with the Renaissance leading into the Reformation. And 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 the transitional period was the Thirty Years' War. And it was cataclysmic. Which was the biggest global conflict that ever took yeah. place and the most violent. And, and well, and as you know, David, I, I, I have an apocalyptic imagination. So I, I think it is entirely 
entirely possible, I won't say likely, but entirely possible, that we get something like that over the next four or five decades. Uh, you know, that as you a, must as be the most cheerful I, I mother. Am. I can just I, see you <laughs> in your kids' birthday parties. Go ahead, blow out the candles. Wish for something. Other than the apocalypse, it's, nothing's going to happen, right? No, I honestly, I feel like I probably should be teaching my children, you know, how to make fires by rubbing two sticks together and, you know, carve bows and arrows out of bits of wood because. Or uh, have Sarah Palin over and you could y- feel dress. You know, well, it's going to be like divergent in the Hunger Games combined. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I, I mean, I think that the, the, the trends that you just described, uh, you know, the collapse of work as we know it. All of the old rules going out the window in terms of, you know, how do you make money? How do you live? How do you do anything? Um, when we combine these technological trends, which would be hard to impossible to manage for the most enlightened of statesmen with the fact that we do not have the most enlightened of statesmen, we have the opposite. We, we, we have we – have, uh, to call them statesmen would be uh, quite inaccurate, but we, we have uh, a president who, who is quite happy to revert to 19th century models. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think it could be it could be catastrophic. I think and, and, I, I saw it, I believe in foreign policy today. There's a little piece in Tom Ricks's column of someone uh, uh, suggesting that the prospects of American civil war have reached 60 percent. Um, that may be, you know, a little okay, bit. More. I think that's a little over the top. But, you know, but, <laughs> here's the thing. We've gone through this before. We've gone from barter to money. We've gone from a world without printing presses to printing presses. And change gone, hurts. And, and, and we're right. And we've gone from the pre-industrial revolution to the industrial revolution. We've gone from a 19th century where the vast majority of people lived on the farm and few lived in the city and worked in industry to the reverse 100 years later. And we've adjusted to all of those changes. But having said that, the periods of transition are the most dangerous right. periods because there are people desperately fighting to cling to what they have. And there's others who realize that they have no future unless change comes. And when it becomes existential one way or another for both parties, then you do get conflict. Now, frankly, we're not going to live in a world without work. We're going to live in a world with different work. And we're not going to live, you know, in the 19th century, people worked seven days a week. The weekend was a 20th century invention. We may live in a work where people live less. I go out, by the way, sometimes I'll give speeches on this and people will say, oh, my God, and they shake their head and they'll go, <laughs> you know, work is how we get our dignity. And I'm like, do you actually believe this shit? The capitalists. <laughs> that's you know, so that weird. Owners, I get my dignity by lying on the sofa uh, reading novels. Well, but that's the thing is. Could you possibly get your dignity yeah. from, I don't know, um, painting a picture, uh, writing a poem, uh, you know, exploring your spiritual life, being with your family? You could if you make it – maybe if you made a living. I, I mean I think – Well, I that's mean, right. But, but, we, I, but we found different models. Yeah, but and, whether and, enough of us can find them. I, look, I, I'm going to – because of all the nerds uh, and being a, a political scientist, I'm going to invoke two sociologists. Okay. No, all right? It's because you're a nerd too. Yeah, that's Colin. true. Okay. That's true. Um, <laughs> I thought it was part of the Beefcake Cafe. Yeah, yeah. That was in the last – No, you're uh, the Beefcake uh, nerd. Oh, right. That's a whole new thing. Right. I'm the Clark Kent of the uh, exactly. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, look, um, you know, Benedict Anderson wrote this famous book called Imagine Communities, right, about the origins of the nation state. And one of the things that he pointed out to was the how important the role that the printing press and newspapers played right. because it allowed people who never met one another to imagine they were part of the same community. And that gave rise to the notion of the nation. And I think that the internet, as you know, is producing identities that aren't located in particular spaces but are around professions and around 
class and and uh, whether it's the Davos crowd or other uh, types of other types other of, tribes. Types of transnational identities. And by the way, no matter what your transnational identity is, you should be able to use whatever bathroom you want. But so you have these new identity uh, uh, constructs. Oh, that was that was a joke that was just so nerdy. That, Sorry, that that Dave, even really David and I. Wait, no, I, was, you know, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> the other the other though uh, the other sociologist I want to evoke is Barrington Moore, who once famously said, wow. "No, no bourgeoisie, no democracy." And that is that the history of the West. There's least, a mug. Yeah, there's the mug. But that the history of the West and its relationship mm-hmm. with democracy is the necessity of a, of a middle class to both mm-hmm. create democracy and sustain it. And one of the things that digitization is doing is even as it's changing identities, it is hollowing out the middle class. There's a lot of rich folks or not that many uh, rich folks, uh, but a lot of very rich folks. Uh, and then you have a huge, uh, you know, basically working class or lower middle class that struggles uh, month to month. And so this is the existential mm-hmm. crisis of the 21st century is how do you reconcile democracy at a time when its foundations are being unmoored by transitions in our economy? And and how do you sustain the notion of a national and a nation state in a, in a way where our identities are changing? And the answer is not Steve Bannon of basically going yeah. all in on well, I wanna, populism, nationalism, Colin, I'm going to I'm going to one-up you on wonky political science uh, Seems references. almost impossible, but um, the other side. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I recently read, um, uh, because I had to review a terrific new book by uh, John Fearjohn and Francis Rosenbluth McCall on the uh, historical interrelationship between the evolution of democracy and the the need for manpower-intensive forms of warfare, uh, and essentially to totally oversimplify the much more complicated argument uh, during during peri- in societies and during periods in which you have manpower-intensive forms of warfare, elites have to make bargains, cut deals politically with the masses because you need to throw them uh, at other masses in order to win wars, and so you see expansions of suffrage and so forth going hand in hand with very manpower-intensive forms of warfare. And they don't spend a lot of time in their book on this. But as a side note here, of course, as we shift into an era of uh, drone warfare and miniaturization and high-tech warfare, which we don't need people anymore. You don't uh, need to cut the deal. Yeah, you don't need to cut the deal anymore. That, that we don't we don't need a middle class, and we don't need the lower. We don't need to cater to the needs of the lower classes either, because we don't need to throw their bodies at other people's bodies, uh, and that doesn't bode particularly well for the future of democracy. It also doesn't particularly bode well for internal societal uh, stability either. When you've got a lot well, of really pissed it's, off, it's, hungry, it's true. Lower but classes. I, I dare say one of the things that we need to do if we're going to go and try and imagine the futures or imagine the communities of tomorrow, if you will, is not not simply look for analogs from the past. And I think that you know one of the things that has been discussed and is actually starting to be explored in some places, Finland is one place, national incomes. There are yeah, other I, ways where Yes, universal basic income. Yes, I'm with you. No, but I but it's and not So are a lot of people in Silicon yes. Valley because they understand right. that otherwise yeah, yeah. the whole thing is going to come down. That's right. And so you know a lot of people go, "Oh my god, we can't do that. That you know, that's socialism or whatever it is." Well, you want to know something? You evoked Karl Marx a little bit earlier. We're going to be reading a lot more Karl Marx. I guarantee you that over the course of the next 20 years there is going to be a resurgence of people going back and reading it. And they're going to say, "Well, he had it wrong about the you industrial revolution." You heard it revolution. here first, ER listeners. Well, but, but, the return but here's of Karl the thing. Marx. If you take capital plus technology, not capital plus means of production, but capital plus technology, you have the ability to create wealth without people. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do that in the context of a society, the society has to figure out what's the rent. 
what it, what it, what does that enterprise pay for the stability and the benefits of living within that society, selling products within that society, providing services to that society? And the rent doesn't have to be radically different from what it is now in order to provide universal basic income. And we, we are not going to get there soon and our children may not get there. But at a certain point in history, it may well be that the solution is that we all contribute – Part of you know of, you know in, in various ways to society, some of which look like work, some of which may look like something else, and we all benefit in some kind of a way. And some people may benefit more, and some people may benefit less. But the model is going to be very different, and it's quite pos- it's quite easy to imagine. And if you read. You know, I'll throw in a few more academic <laughs> references here, but if you read Race Against the Machine or Second Machine Age by Eric Brynjolfsson and Andy McAfee, they, they start to talk about these issues. They start to grapple with these issues. Um, and honestly, you know, the last election should have been a discussion about the future of work and how do you create a job and how do you take care of people in this kind of environment? How do you deal with this displacement? And instead, it became an election about how do you deal with your fear of this displacement? Mm -hmm. And that that's why transitional periods are so dangerous. And, you know, we've seen that before. And, you know, when you were in elementary school, Rosa, in 1848, and the (laughs) revolutions broke out across Europe, that was in part a response to this. The You're absolutely right, David. Remember that? Back in, in Vienna High or wherever you were. <laughs> uh, you know, it's too bad Corey's not here. It is too could, bad. Could, she would love this. This is her zone. Corey, Corey, come back. This is, Corey's in like Marrakesh or someplace, you know, <laughs> as we as we tape this. If I had a nickel for every time I was in a room and somebody said, I really wish Corey was here instead. <laughs> Uh, be a rich man. <laughs> uh, no, no. In addition to you, typically uh, there's four of us here. I'm not saying it does that. feel a little lonesome. Um, just the but, three but, of us. But I just feel I feel kind of like I'm I'm cheating on Corey's era. You know, it's like once we get back into the 19th century, she's so happy. You, but it, she prefers 19th century U.S. history and the classical era. She's not that interested in 19th century Europe. I, oh, that's I true. don't she think goes, Corey. She goes she'll from correct like me. Henry wrong. Clay yeah. to like. Thucydides. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, we threw Thucydides in here. In fact, this, I think, honestly, folks, as we draw to a conclusion, may have been the wackiest episode <laughs> of the ER ever. Certainly in terms of academic terms and references to obscure books that it, even our ER listeners will not read. Right. And should Yes, read. they should read oh, and okay. go <laughs> pre-order David's book. Oh, good point. For God's sake. Sorry, I forgot my reference. Right. I made a reference to my little tiny TED book. You know, these are TED books. They're short. They're 100 pages. I want to write tiny books from now on. Is this like the tiny house movement? I got to tell, tell you something. It's not easier. It's not writing a short book. How is, tiny can they be? Like, could I repackage one of my foreign policy columns as a no, book? No, actually, just a, it's just one large tweet thread. Yeah, right. Exactly. 140 <laughs> characters at a time. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is how Donald Trump is going to write his right. life story. Um, <laughs> his be, memoirs. His memoirs will be, you know, a tweet. Yeah. Yeah, uh, please, ER listeners, sad. send us Donald Trump's memoirs in one tweet. I'd really like to see <laughs> I'd really like to see what that looks like. I saw. I fucked it all up. I fucked it all up. (laughs) Um, Exactly. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Um, Okay, folks. We ended up. Dear listeners, was a quote from T.S. Eliot. Thank you. And also a kind of apocalyptic (laughs) turn that only Rosa could truly appreciate. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, did you read your kids like apocalyptic stories when you like go to bed at night? I mean, are they? Are they... I try to prepare them for the 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 coming cataclysm as much as I can. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's and not so just that's winter. It. It's nuclear winter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I can just imagine. You know, everybody gathered in their bomb shelter. <laughs> you know. No, they. There. They. I'm too lazy. That's the sad truth of it all. I. You know, I'm. I'm too slothful. I sit around the sofa reading novels too much to actually stock my bomb shelter. And I feel very bad about that because the children will suffer. They... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Please, please. I hope that never happens. Send your canned goods to Rosa Brooks <laughs> at the following at the following. You address. can send them right here to Foreign Policy <laughs> Magazine. <laughs> and we will stockpile we... them here in our tiny studio far yeah, above DuPont Circle. The studio is Circle. quite bunker-like, actually. Yeah, and it we is. We could fill it up with canned I feel goods. very safe in here. And if there were canned goods, you'd feel safer. I would. I would. Yeah, as exactly. well as an underground reservoir. I did. Colin, I don't know if you did this. I'm sure you did. When, when Colin and I both worked at the Pentagon, paid a visit to the secret military bunker under a mountain where we will all go in the event of nuclear apocalypse. And it was really weird. Yeah. And um, all I can say about it since, you know, I can't reveal classified information. All I can say is the whole time I was touring, every time they kept saying things to me like, we have redundant systems down here. If this reservoir fails, we have the other reservoir. If this nuclear power plant fails, we have the other one. All I could think of was this is the point in the horror movie where the lights go out, you know, and yeah. you're, ah, yeah. and the creature comes well, it out. It wasn't the, the last scene in, in Dr. Strangelove where it's <laughs> well, like, that, you that, need yeah. seven women for every man? And <laughs> there's right. a mine shaft gap. Yeah. <laughs> Man, this has gotten really dark. <laughs> that's with the that's Trump where we're all gonna and, go, and, and we're we're sitting there. It's good with thing we know where it is. Trump survivalism. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can just see you there, yeah. Rosa, with your kids banging yeah. at the door. I, I can't wait to see the helicopter is no longer coming for us. Oh either no! One of us. Oh god! <laughs> In the Trump <laughs> yeah. administration, it's going to be Trump, and it's going to be like the Pied Piper goes under the mountain with all the Trump administration people, and we're standing on the outside saying, "Bye, guys." <laughs> and, and knowing Trump, I've seen him get into his limo. He would step on Melania's body to get into this thing before she got in there. Um, well, there's an image to deal with as we come to the well, end and literally and so the, we end, come to the end. Know, this, is, this is very dark. It got dark very quickly. Yeah. Well, I hope that helps you with your work out there, ER nerds on the treadmill. Um, as soon as you're done, start sending those canned goods to Rosa. We appreciate it. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, producers. Thank you, listeners. And we'll be back with you again next week. You have been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, and I have been your host. Uh, the program is produced by Maria Ori with the assistance of Alex Dorr. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>